This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. Our show here on the Legal Talk Network focuses on topics relating to the law of workers' compensation. Today's show is going to involve uh, a discussion of a very common occupational condition known as carpal tunnel syndrome and repetitive stress injuries involving the hands or upper extremities in particular. I'm very pleased uh, to introduce our guest. It's Dr. J. Mark Melhorn. He's here with us by telephone. Dr. Melhorn is an occupational orthopedic physician. He specializes in hands and upper extremities. He is a graduate of the University of Kansas School of Medicine, where he is currently a clinical assistant professor in the orthopedics section, Department of Surgery. And in addition, he writes and lectures and researches regarding workplace illnesses and injuries, return to work options, impairment and disability, and prevention of musculoskeletal pain in the workplace. His most recent work, co-authored with J.B. Talmadge's A Physician's Guide to Return to Work. Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters, Dr. Melhorn. Thank you for the invite. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I was going through some statistics, and I was amazed to see that carpal tunnel syndrome is among the top three industrial uh, conditions giving rise to workers' compensation claims. That surprises me. Does it surprise you? No, I think that with the increasing use of hand activities, the people who are reporting musculoskeletal aches and pains has increased. Many of the workplaces have worked on designing improved ergonomics, particularly with regard to heavier lifts. Machines are replacing a lot of the older back-lifting components that were done. More hand tasks are being required, and so people are more likely to report symptoms with those activities. And I've noticed that in my practice. When I first started out 30 uh, or so years ago, I don't think I uh, would know a carpal tunnel case if I uh, bumped into one. I was dealing with the back, the shoulder, the knee, uh, the common orthopedic extremity and uh, uh, conditions of the spine. And as we have moved, at least in Massachusetts, away from being a a manufacturing industrial factory-based economy to a service economy with Uh, more automated uh, machines and word processing machines. The hands and the upper extremities are now engaged eight hours a day in rapid and repetitive activity. Is that the common cause of carpal tunnel syndrome and or any other conditions that are uh, now common in the work setting? Actually, carpal tunnel and musculoskeletal pain complaints or overuse syndrome, repetitive strain injury, There's a variety of labels for those. Actually have a combination of two factors. One is the individual risk, and individual risk is who you and I are. So, for example, Alan, um, I'm six feet tall and weigh 180 pounds. So I'm a perfect ergonomic specimen for the world we live in. If you are taller or shorter or wider or way more, 
All of the above. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) The workplace, then, is either too much different for you or different to you than it is for me. So a lot of the machines that are manufactured, a can of pop, hairspray, may fit into my hand ideally, but if you take a smaller woman whose hand is smaller, that spray can may be a little bit larger or the drill may be a little bit uh, harder to grip and hold on to. And so they are a little more ergonomically challenged in doing their activities. So the reason people get carpal tunnel has to do with age. As we get older, our risk increases. And I I doubt any of your listeners would argue that um, as we get older, things hurt more than they do otherwise. Women tend to be at slightly increased risk over men, and part of that probably has to do with the fact that women oftentimes do two jobs, um, one at home and one in the workplace. And then women also tend to have kids, and not being a sexist, but looking at strictly the science, having children causes swelling uh, when you are pregnant. That swelling puts some pressure on the nerves. Some of that swelling may not go away, and that results in some permanent change to nerve itself. Then the other thing that can occur is that um, people may have medical conditions such as diabetes or thyroidism that places them at greater risk for nerve entrapment. So that's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is physical activities. So as a physician, when people come to me and they say, "I, I do repetitive activities in the job, I do keyboard activities, that's what's caused my carpal tunnel, I try to share with my patients and educate them that What you do physically is only a part. The individual risk characteristics that I discussed probably represent 65% of who will develop carpal tunnel. 35% then is associated with physical activities both at home and at work. The ergonomist who looks at the workplace tends to focus on repetition and posture, awkward positions, grasp and gripping activities because an ergonomist can primarily focus on intervention for those things. A lot of physicians tend to focus on the medical component, but I believe that the real solution to this is a dual focus. You need to have a broad spectrum and realize that you have certain individuals at high risk. You have certain job activities that may aggravate or initiate or make the symptoms greater, but not necessarily be the cause of why the person develops carpal tunnel. Let's back up a little bit, and if you could explain the anatomy of the wrist and the hand and how carpal tunnel syndrome develops and what it actually means anatomically. Carpal tunnel is a pinching of the nerve or narrowing or entrapment, all terms used. As the nerve comes down the middle of the forearm, the median nerve passes between the base of the thumb and the base of the little finger at the wrist when you bend your wrist or crease area, or if you wear a watch band, for example. Underneath that, the nerve passes through a tight band, which is like a piece of bristle that holds the tendons and the nerve in place. Unfortunately, that nerve is the most sensitive structure in the wrist. And so when people get swelling from pregnancy or a fall or from physical activities, That swelling then puts pressure on the nerve. That tends to trigger the symptoms of numbness and tingling in the thumb, index, and middle finger. Uh, People oftentimes will describe their hand going to sleep or feeling numb like somebody tapped their crazy bone. Uh, 
those are common complaints for carpal tunnel. Over time, as the nerve continues to be pinched, people may then progress to where they have weakness, loss of grasp, or frequently will complain of dropping things, where they'll have a hold of something and then they just drop it. What is the usual course of conservative treatment, that is, non-surgical treatment that is offered? Um, I think the most important thing is education, which is what we're doing today, in that there's a lot of misinformation that is out there. There was a nice study done by the American Society for Surgery of the Hand that looked at medical websites, and I use the medical term in quotations, but they actually looked up carpal tunnel, went through, had physicians read the information, and then try to determine how scientifically accurate it was. Only about 25% of the information on the Internet was correct with regard to carpal tunnel. So when people go to the Internet or read lay literature, they need to realize that perhaps only a quarter of that may be scientifically valid. What, so, what might be the most common uh, mis- piece of misinformation that's out there? Is it the cause, the treatment, the, the permanency, uh, or, or what? I think the most common uh, misinformation is that the job is the cause. Wait a minute, I don't like that. Well, but, but that's an important thing to understand. When you say from a scientific point of view that the job is the cause, from a scientific point of view, that means that every person does a specific job activity has to develop carpal tunnel. And there are only two jobs that scientifically have been proven, stone quarry drill operator and chainsaw logger. What, a, what about the keyboardist, eight hours a day, 100 well, words a minute? Well, actually, there are some very good studies that show that the keyboard is safe and the keyboard in and of itself is not the cause. However, here is the tripper in my opinion. In the state of Kansas, for example, Kansas law states that if the job activity creates an iota of aggravation, then the condition is work compensable and is treated under the workers' compensation system. So in Kansas, even though the job is not the cause, it is a contributory component, in my opinion, and therefore many of these individuals who do experience nerve entrapment symptoms associated with work activities should be covered under workers' compensation. Many states have different thresholds. Um, For Washington State, for example, it's 51%. Certain states, such as Virginia, have basically passed legislation that says no carpal tunnel, no matter how it occurs, is work compensable. Um, Other states, for example, have determined that any firefighter or police officer who has a heart condition, it is work compensable. So the legal system has stepped in on occasions and changes what the medical knowledge is to allow the law to state a different threshold with regard to compensability. And you, you raise a very good point, Doctor, and because Workers' Comp Matters covers uh, or has listeners all over the country, everybody should be aware that every particular jurisdiction, whether it's the federal government or the different states, do define what is or is not a personal injury under the workers' compensation law differently. And you did a very good job picking out two or three states where the definition varies. Just for example, in Massachusetts, uh, our law, which used to be an aggravation of a pre-existing condition or what you would sort of analogize uh, the Kansas law to be, 
uh, it was substituted uh, to a more narrower causal relationship uh, threshold. In Massachusetts, we have to prove the work activity of the work injury uh, remains a major but not necessarily predominant cause of the disability or treatment. So uh, this varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and whether a condition like CTS or carpal tunnel syndrome is work-related as you put it, is both uh, grounded in the reality of the the anatomy and the the science behind it, but also by the legal definition of how the workplace and the activities in the workplace interact with that. Um, so let's assume whether it's a work-related CTS or not. Um, what are the non-surgical ways? Uh, we we know that surgery is is commonly, at least when I see clients, they are either. Uh, about to have or they have had surgery, but is there a non-surgical management uh, modality that is um, practiced to avoid surgery? Yes, as as you asked, I did talk about the education, which is first, but the most common ones after the education um, then become an exercise stretch, um, rotation of tasks in both the workplace and non-workplace. Anti-inflammatory medicines have been demonstrated to help on occasions uh, for certain individuals who are not sensitive or who have GI issues. Injections into the wrist uh, in, uh, about the nerve, but not into the nerve itself. These steroid injections? Yes, would be a steroid component, may help decrease or break this inflammatory cycle. Splints used to be commonly used, and splints at night probably are still a reasonable option. Although splints during the day and in the workplace have sort of fell out of favor. And my personal opinion is that probably the individual ends up fighting against the splints too much during the workday to make that recommendation to wear splints during the day. And then after you look at the non-surgical options, which is that list that we went through, if you've made those changes, they still have symptoms, surgical intervention is a reasonable next course. Now, before we turn to surgical intervention, um, in my practice, almost universally, before anybody is uh, considered a surgical candidate or, for that matter, when he or she is going through the diagnosis and treatment, they are offered um, diagnostic studies like electromyography and nerve conduction velocities. Tell me the, uh, the role those so-called objective studies have in establishing both the diagnosis and the uh, need for treatment, and uh, then you may want to get into what you described as a type 1 or a type 2 uh, patient, somebody whose clinical picture fits the electrodiagnosis and the ones that don't. I know I've given you a lot there, but uh, talk a little bit about EMGs and NCVs. A good, well-trained physician, by using the history and the physical examination, can probably 95 to 97 accurately diagnose the peripheral nerve entrapment, the carpal tunnel, which will be confirmed by the nerve test. Now, any one physical exam item, such as Phelan's test, which is a bending of the wrist and the individual reporting subjective complaints of numbness in the fingers, in itself is not very specific and not very sensitive. Those are two medical terms that physicians use frequently when looking at a test. Sensitivity means, is the answer correct? And specificity means, is the answer correct for the correct diagnosis? Nerve conduction studies 
can be very sensitive and very specific if used in a population that probably has carpal tunnel. So the physician who does the examination and takes the history says, I believe this person has a carpal tunnel, and then sends them for the nerve test, frequently the nerve test will come back positive. However, if you just randomly do nerve tests on, say, 100 employees, and there was a nice study done where the first 100 employees for a furniture factory in the south underwent nerve testing, of that, 25% of the people had an abnormal nerve test. None of those 25 people had reported carpal tunnel symptoms to their family physician or to the company physician prior to the test. So randomly pre-testing by nerve studies is not a good approach for an employer who's trying to screen out this group of people from the population. But once people have symptoms and the examination has been done, the nerve test is a very good next step to confirm. Now, that's important because as a treating physician, if you have someone who complains of numbness and tingling, who has night neuropraxia, which is awakening at night, the hands go to sleep, they shake their hands out, you've treated them medically, you've done the injection, the injection has helped some, and the nerve test is abnormal, that group of patients responds very well to surgery for carpal tunnel and actually has a very good outcome even in workers' compensation cases. In the other class, a non-classical component, the symptoms are somewhat vague. They are um, consistent with the diagnosis, but the nerve conduction study is not abnormal. Some of those people still benefit from surgery, but the outcome for that group of patients is not as good. Now, part of that may be that people are complaining of symptoms earlier and are being seen before the permanent changes occur on their nerve test, which is why there isn't that good correlation between the two, and so the surgery itself is not as beneficial. Or part of it may simply be that the diagnosis was not correct and that the nerve study was not abnormal and there was some other cause for why they were having very good. Well, doctor, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back with Dr. Mark Melhorn, we're going to discuss the case of the day and put him to the test. So we will be right back. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. We'll be right back on the Legal Talk Network with more from our host, attorney Alan S. Pierce, and his guest on Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on the people and legal issues in workers' comp cases. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law. Appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where we are discussing carpal tunnel syndrome and other repetitive stress injuries in the workplace. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. We hope you'll find this and our other shows here on the Legal Talk Network interesting. 
We'd like to welcome back Dr. Mark Melhorn, hand surgeon from Kansas, where we have been discussing carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, before we uh, continue with our discussion, uh, doctor, uh, we're going to talk about the case of the day. I'm going to describe a recent case that has come down from one of the courts across the country, and uh, I will ask you to give it a shot to tell uh, your best uh, uh, analysis legally as to how uh, the gentleman uh, prevailed. The case comes to us from the California Court of Appeals. It is the case of Marcos Uribe versus the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. Let me give you the facts, Dr. Mel Horton. Marcos was employed as an assistant manager of a restaurant, and at the end of the shift, he counted and bagged the restaurant's money, and he could be seen doing that from the street. On the day in question, he left the restaurant at the end of the shift, punched out, was walking across the street, and he was carrying a bag that looked similar to the money bag. Well, two robbers were watching him from across the street, and as he got near his automobile, they shot him in the arm, causing injuries. They brought a claim for workers' compensation benefits, but the insurance company denied it because California, like many other jurisdictions, has what's known as the going and coming rule. And what that means is you are covered for workers' compensation benefits when you are at work, on the employer's premises, and working. But when you are leaving work or going to work and you haven't arrived or you've left and you're commuting home, you're not covered. So the issue presented to the Court of Appeals was whether Mr. Uribe should be awarded workers' compensation benefits. And uh, knowing no more than that, could you venture a guess as how the appeals court uh, ruled whether they found Mr. Uribe got workers' comp or whether he didn't? Uh, Again, he was leaving work the money back for the employer and was getting ready to take the money back to the bank to um, make the deposit for the employer? No, he uh, was carrying a bag that looked like the money bag and was getting into his automobile to go home for the night. Okay. Well, I, I believe that since he was not actually carrying the money back to go to the bank, make the deposit for the employer, that he probably would be determined legally not to be covered. That is how the uh, industrial board ruled, but that was overturned by the Court of Appeals. And when they reversed the award, uh, they looked at the circumstances of this case, and they said there's a two-pronged test. Uh, One, but for the employment, would the injured worker have been at the location where the injury occurred? And two, was the risk distinctive from that of the general public? And in this case, the claimant would not have been at that location where he was shot but for his employment, and he was exposed to risks distinct from those of the general public because they observed him counting the day's receipt shortly before he left work. So on this particular case, the facts justified a special exception to the going and coming rule. Uh, You make a good point, doctor. Uh, If he were on his way to the bank or to make a night deposit, I don't think it would have even gotten to the uh, hearing level. I think that clearly would have been covered. Uh, But as you can see from that case, uh, the types of cases that give rise to litigation are as varied as the imagination. People get hurt every day in the workplace, and workers' compensation is the system by which they're compensated. If we now turn back to our topic today, carpal tunnel syndrome, let's talk a little bit about the the role of workers' compensation in both the prevalence of carpal tunnel syndrome as a diagnosis and as a a problem in terms of uh, outcome or recovery from treatment. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that, Doctor? 
Well, I think that um, if the carpal tunnel is considered to be work compensable, and we've talked earlier about each state has a different threshold, but moving beyond what's the cause. And um, in uh, November of this year, the AMA Press will be putting out a new book that I co-edited, so I guess I'll put a short disclaimer in here, um, called Guides to the Evaluation of Disease and Injury Causation. And in there, we kind of look at what are the causes and what are the thresholds. But assuming that's already been established so that we now have workers' comp agreeing that it is work compensable, then I think it's important for both the physician and the patient to understand that sometimes the outcome may be affected by other factors. This can be an uh, employer who is not very congenial or willing to adjust or make modifications or allow the employee back to modified work, uh, a disgruntled employee who's unhappy with the supervisor, so there's already some static or rift in the workplace. Um, it's much easier to go back to work if you have coworkers that you enjoy working with and, and life is good, so to speak. There is some discomfort with surgery. The hand does hurt. Um, if you are motivated, most people can go back to some sort of modified life work the next day. In Kansas, we have a lot of self-employed farmers Many of them are asking me, how long will it take before they can go out and slop the hogs and do the cows and the pigs? And I tell them that you can go back the next day. It may hurt when you do that, but you're not actually hurting the healing process um, in, the, in the overall healing of the injury itself. So I think the employee should be covered under the workers' compensation system if it has been determined that they should get the appropriate and carefully provided treatment. They should get a reasonably good outcome but that everyone involved in the process, both the attorneys, plaintiffs, and defense, the employer, the insurance carrier, physician, and the patient need to realize that workers' compensation is a challenging system that can add additional levels of complexity to the recovery. And I couldn't agree with you more, even though my uh, area of practice is representing injured workers. I see firsthand the effects of uh, losing one's job losing the income or battling the insurance company or the employer uh, would have on a worker and his family. Uh, we've been talking about carpal tunnel syndrome, but there are other repetitive stress maladies that I, I've uh, been coming across in my practice. Maybe we could touch in the few moments we have left on some other common problems, whether it's lateral epicondylitis or well, I guess that's what, tennis elbow. Uh, what are some of the other common uh, repetitive stress injuries or cumulative trauma uh, injuries that you see emanating from the workplace? Lateral epicondylitis is probably next on the list. This is a painful area on the outside of the elbow that makes it difficult to lift, grip, uh, and carry. Um, Deeker veins tendonitis, which is an inflammation at the base of the thumb, which makes it difficult to pinch and grip and write. Trigger fingers or digits is where you get swelling in the palm area and the finger snaps back and forth triggers um, in the pulley sheath in the hand. Lateral epicondylitis can also cause medial epicondylitis, which is inflammation on the inside of the elbow. Um, rotator cuff tendonitis, bursitis um, can cause difficulty, particularly in those who do a lot of hand-over-shoulder activities like electricians, ceiling installers, um, welders, and those individuals. And, and so really any musculoskeletal diagnosis of the upper extremities can have a contribution 
that occurs from the physical activities in an individual who's at increased risk. And as we talked about before, as you get older, that risk goes up, and so many of us will have more aches and pains doing simple jobs um, as we get older. Well, Dr. J. Mark Melhorn, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this afternoon on Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything you want to leave our audience with before we say goodbye? Uh, my closing thought would be that if you are having symptoms of hand involvement or workplace-type injuries, realize that there is both an individual and a workplace component, that many people can go back to the same job and not have a reoccurrence, and that that will improve their outcome and their quality of life rather than thinking that they need to retrain or find a new job. Well, thanks again, Dr. Melhorn. Uh, we hope you'll join us again uh, out there for another Workers' Comp Matters show. Thanks for listening today. I'm Attorney Alan Pierce, go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by Attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in Workers' Cop legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Cop Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.